morning. Thank you. Morning, Susie. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, June 8th, 2016. Um, sort of our last fully academic Grand Rounds of the academic year. Next week we will gather for um, Quiz Bowl, which is educational, of course, as well as entertaining, and graduation. So on this last academic um, um, pediatric rounds until we reconvene in the fall. It's, it's timely that I note um, this week's issue of JAMA Pediatrics, take a look at it. Two, two of the articles this week are, are from um, um, Chad and Geisel. So one by Drs. Corinne Brooks, Wade Harrison, who is now Dr. Wade Harrison after graduating this past weekend, and Sean Ralston on bronchiolitis, and Dr. Margaret Carragas, uh, lead author on a paper um, from probably the Children's Environmental Health Study. So uh, uh, yet another proud moment in the literature for here at Dartmouth. So we get to um, hear from our final graduating resident today, Dr. Samantha Martin, as we launch her off into the world. Dr. Martin is a native of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and will um, safely return to Canada prior to any elections that occur here in the fall. Um, uh, she grew up, I believe, more in, in the Toronto suburbs, attending the University of Western Ontario in London, before heading across to Trinity College at the University of Dublin, Ireland for her medical degree. Uh, she has been a world traveler, recently actually came back from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania as part of the Dardar program as our exchange uh, resident and had other travel experiences both undergrad and during her time at Trinity College where, among other things, she was a member of the Dublin University Ladies Association Football Club in Dublin, Ireland as a member. That, of course, is European football and therefore soccer. We, I for a second wondered if you were a rugger, a rugby player, but um, did so. Um, did so during that time. So I, I wasn't able in all cases to uh, gather back as I had for Urs the, the, the in statement, the essay that the candidates wrote at that point when they were intern candidates, but it's really nice, it's really nice to um, use their own words. Um, not against them, but um, but Samantha wrote at that point that she was, I'm an enthusiastic, hardworking, goal-oriented person and look forward to my future in pediatrics with great anticipation. And, and I think that rings completely true to those of us who know Sam. Ideally, my program of choice would focus on the importance of teamwork while offering a supportive mentorship um, program with a strong emphasis on education and current research methodologies. So we found each other uh, through the match process process appropriately. And even at that point, uh, Dr. Martin expressed an extreme interest and expertise and passion for both um, pediatric hematology, oncology, and adolescent medicine. Um, we went out. She's going to be doing adolescent medicine fellowship at uh, SickKids in Toronto, uh, a fine fellowship um, with, with friends of mine, and we'll be looking forward to many presentations in the future at the adolescent medicine meetings. But I'm pleased that um, that you haven't let go of your oncology interests and that you um, realize and appreciate and show us that adolescent medicine actually has medicine in it. It's not just the biopsychosocial stuff that sometimes people attribute it to. So um, I'm looking forward to your talk. Welcome, Sam. Can you guys hear me? 
Is that okay? Let's check the volume down a little bit. Try it again. Better? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Loud, for the uh, kind introduction. And thank you, everyone, for attending this morning, the final resident Grand Rounds presentation. Um, my colleagues have certainly set the bar high for me today. So the title of my talk is Preserving Hope, Fertility in Pediatric Oncology Patients. I have no conflicts of interest, and I have nothing to disclose. This notion of hope is something you will notice permeates the patient perspectives I'm going, to, I'm going to share on cancer treatment and fertility preservation. As we proceed, I ask you to keep this notion of hope in the back of your mind. Try not to overlook it as simply the softer side of medicine, but really recognize, recognize it for the massive impact it has on these patients' lives. So reproduction. Reproduction itself is a fundamental human instinct. Throughout evolution, the instinct to reproduce has been hardwired into our DNA to allow us to persist as species. As we've evolved, we've also recognized that reproduction is a fundamental human right. Agreement on this was so widespread that the United Nations put it in the Universal Declaration, for Declaration of Human Rights. And for most people, cancer or not, Reproduction is an incredibly meaningful choice. I'll let you take a second to read this quote. So these are the words um, of a childhood cancer survivor, Lindsay Beck, describing her experiences as a young adult being diagnosed with cancer and told that her treatment would result in a high risk of her being infertile. At that time, she was not offered any fertility preservation options. So even though the trade-off for Lindsay was life-saving treatment, what I see when I read these words is the power of that loss of hope a patient can experience when the choice to reproduce is taken away from them. Ultimately, Lindsay, this patient, decided to delay her treatment and independently seek out fertility preservation options. She's now a mother of two boys, born by IVF, and also the founder of a nonprofit organization called Fertile Hope, which provides reproductive services for cancer patients and survivors. Unfortunately, for many cancer patients in similar situations, Lindsay's example, Lindsay is an example, um, or is an exception rather than the rule, and the consequences can be really devastating. I'd hope to marry and have a family. A lot of young people's hopes and dreams are to be able to have children. That was my greatest loss. These are the words of a now 66-year-old woman who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma as a teenager, um, really describing her having lost the ability to have children and the painful ripple effect this had over the course of her life. Thankfully today, for oncology patients and beyond, for males and females, we have a growing number of fertility preservation options to offer. So at this point, some of you may be wondering um, why a resident who's decided to go and choose a career in adolescent medicine, aka trying to control all these crazy hormonal teens from getting pregnant, um, is about to dish out strategies on how to make sure kids get pregnant. <laughs> Valid point. Um, so essentially, why have I chosen this topic? 
So the practical answer is, as Dr. Ludd mentioned, um, my two main areas of interest in pediatrics are adolescent medicine and oncology. So I tend to explore issues at their intersection, one being fertility. But the more meaningful answer um, is the conversations I had when caring for two specific adolescent oncology patients as an intern and second year resident, um, a young guy and a young girl. <clears throat> and what struck me most about the conversations I had with them while they were receiving intensive chemotherapy and treatments for their cancer was their constant desire to talk about their hopes for the future, whether it be the prom that they, wanted, they were going to go to or um, the colleges they were excited to look into or how pumped they were to be to get their driver's license for the summer. Um, and also the idea of maybe having a family one day. So eager to learn more about my patients' future outcomes, I started to read about late effects and gravitated towards fertility preservation. We know that with advances in medicine, our patients with chronic illness are not only surviving to, adult, to, to become adults, but they're leading full adult lives. So this prompts two really important points I want to make. As, pedi as pediatric providers, we have a responsibility to recognize that the treatments we are offering or choosing to give our patients now may have long-term consequences in their lives in the future. Fertility, um, we can no longer think of as this adult issue. We, it's something we really need to address and talk about now. Secondly, um, although I'm focusing on oncology patients in my talk today, I really want to emphasize that fertility is not specific to oncology and applies to many pediatric conditions. So to further just support those two points, I wanted to show you this paper that was actually published in the May 2016 Journal of Pediatrics. And it emphasizes the uh, growing body of literature on the long-term impacts of various pediatric conditions and their treatment on fertility. And essentially, it just reinforces that, pedi that pediatricians really must start to take responsibility and acknowledge the impact of reproductive and sexual function on the long-term quality of our patients' lives and start to counsel, counsel them on treatment plans in order to ensure optimal outcomes. So now that I've given you a brief introduction, I'm going to um, just go through the learning objectives for today. So I hope to highlight the importance of discussing fertility preservation in pediatrics. Um, I'm, I'm going to review the effects of oncologic treatment on future fertility in pediatric patients. I'll review some of the standard and experimental therapy options for fertility preservation. And lastly, identify some of the barriers to treatment and some potential solutions to improve fertility preservation in our pediatric patients. So who exactly, what patient populations are we focusing on when we talk about fertility? As I've mentioned a few times, um, the oncology patient population. And I chose to talk about them today just due to the scope of evidence and the research available. But as I mentioned previously, there are a number of non-malignant conditions um, that place our pediatric patients at risk of infertility. So for example, patients with, patients with endocrine conditions such as Turner's syndrome or Klinefelter's disease, our transgender patients, patients with uh, kidney disease such as nephrotic syndrome or SLE nephritis, um, rheumatologic conditions, hematologic conditions including sickle cell anemia, and lastly, our CF patients. 
So to appreciate how big of a consideration infertility is in the pediatric, pediatric oncology population, we just need to look at the incidence and survival trends. So the figure on the left is the childhood cancer incidence over time, um, and the red line is the showing that trend over time, essentially that the incidence of childhood cancer is increasing. It's estimated to be increasing at a rate of about 0.6% per year. However, Today, cure is the more likely outcome for a child diagnosed with cancer. So um, there's been incredible advances in survival rate over the past four decades. And you'll notice on the figure on the right that shows the childhood cancer five-year survival rate. Again, the red line showing that trend um, and the increase in survival rate over time. And this was looking at data from the 1970s 70s to early 2000. It's estimated that the overall five-year survival rate for childhood for childhood cancer is now over 80%. So to put this in perspective, about one in 700 individuals in the US is a survivor, survivor of childhood or adolescent cancer. And it's estimated that about, two, about by 2020, there'll be over 500,000 survivors. So with this growing population of survivors, there's now considerable focus um, on the late effects and how we can best improve the quality of life of these patients. Two-thirds of survivor, survivors will suffer from one late, at least one late effect. The adverse um, outcomes can include anything from impairment in growth and development, the risk of developing a secondary malignancy, organ, impaired organ function, so cardiac or pulmonary, um, psychosocial issues, and of course, fertility and reproduction. Survivors, the literature um, reports that the survivors are um, most concerned or commonly complain or complain about the fact that their that their infertility is one of the biggest factors that um, impairs their quality of life. So to highlight um, two important papers from the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study published by Green et al. in 2009 and 2010 respectively. Um, looked at the fertility of female and male cancer survivors who were diagnosed between the 1970s and 1986, and they really just sh they just compared the cancer survivors to sibling cohorts, and essentially both papers showed that the result or showed that the um, female male survivors had a less were less likely to have children compared to their healthy sibling cohorts. So why do we care? What did we learn from patients? about the risks of infertility on their quality of life. There's extensive qualitative research looking at the psychosocial impact of infertility on childhood cancer survivors. This is one paper I wanted to highlight by Nielsen et al. in 2014 that asked adolescent and young adult cancer survivors what they thought about the risk of being infertile, what their thoughts were. Um, so the, the data was collected from various online um, group discussions, and some common themes emerged. Patients reported that even though they had, they knew about their risk of being infertile, they still had a strong desire to have biologic children in the future. Many discussed concerns about um, how it impaired their well-being and their intimate relations, relationships. They described that the risk of infertility led to um, feelings of poor self-esteem. And then interestingly, some participants also expressed concern for the future health of their children should they successfully go on to conceive. Other studies have shown some interesting, um, interesting concerns as well that I wanted to share. Um, there is a reported increased rate of divorce and lower rate of marriage um, associated with this perceived loss of infertility in survivors. 
Um, and many survivors report feeling that they didn't have adequate knowledge at the time of the diagnosis and would really like to be informed of their risks of infertility early on, even at the onset of the diagnosis. So I'd like to just shift gears now and move on to look at the effects of oncology treatment on the future fertility of males and females. Um, then I want to discuss some of the standard and experimental therapies that we have to offer. So I'm going to go about this by first discussing males and then, going, and then moving on to discuss females. So uh, briefly though, I'm just going to refresh your memory, a little biology 101. Um, sorry for the graphic slide so early. Um, <laughs> So normal testicular function, so there's two main functions of uh, the testes, to produce sperm, a process known as spermatogenesis, and to produce hormones, so testosterone. The hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis that you may remember is really important in regulating these two processes. The main take-home point from this slide that I want you to look at is just to, to notice or appreciate that there are multiple sites where fertility can be affected. So on the H, looking at the HPG axis, you can see that any treatment or disease to the brain or the reproductive organ themselves can, have, um, can result in impaired spermatogenesis and fertility. Um, also, I wanted to highlight in addressing some of the other non-malignant conditions that can result in infertility is the stars in, the stars in green. So our CF patients, um, they may have absence or absent or atrophied vas deferens. Um, our patients with Kleinfelter syndrome um, get microorchidism and have impaired spermatogenesis. And then again, our patients with sickle cell um, can get erectile dysfunction from priapism and also abnormal semen production. Similarly, for the females, so the ovary function is again to produce mature oocytes or eggs and hormones, so estrogen and progesterone. Um, females, have, females, of course, have a similar hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, which again regulates these two processes. So again, multiple sites where their fertility can be impaired. Um, the green stars, again, are, are highlighting some of the non-malignant conditions. So the, the green star at the cervix for patients with CF, um, they, are, they may get thickening of their cervical mucus. The, the, uh, patients with Turner syndrome get ovarian dysgenesis. So just so you can appreciate the number of uh, places that can lead to impaired fertility. But there are differences between males and females, and so I will have to differentiate between the two. So uh, I want to introduce two cases before I, before I move on. Um, I want you to keep in mind these cases as we discuss the effects of fertility for males and females and various options available, and think about challenges that might arise when we, when we talk about these two patients. So meet John. He is a 12-year-old male recently diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, his treatment plan is to start chemotherapy, induction chemotherapy, this week. On the right is Sarah. She is a 16-year-old female with pelvic ring sarcoma. Um, she is uh, expressed a desire to have children in the future. She currently is madly in love with her boyfriend of three months and um, is quite ill and needs to start chemotherapy and pelvic radiation. Okay. So when looking at the causes of infertility, you can break it down by looking at the effects of the disease, so the cancer, and the effects of treatment. 
So looking at the disease, um, the disease can have a direct effect on the reproductive organs. It can result in germ cell depletion or decreased hormone production. So for example, um, patients with testicular cancer have, been sh have shown to have impaired spermatogenesis even before orchiectomy. Patients with leukemia and Hodgkin's lymphoma have, uh, the studies have shown that they actually have decreased pretreatment sperm quality. So, um, and then in terms of the treatment, anywhere from the surgery to the radiation to the chemotherapy could all cause infertility. So starting with the males and the surgical effects. So this is quite obvious. Um, when a reproductive organ is removed or altered, you're going to have an impairment in the ability to be fertile. But let's move on to the radiation. So again, back to our HPG axis. So the effects of radiotherapy are dependent on two factors, the site and the dose. So the site can be cranial. So um, CNS tumors are the second most common um, solid tumor in kids. So cranial radiation is not uncommon. Or um, direct radiation to the testes. Now, the testes are very, very sensitive to radiation. Um, doses as low as 0.1 gray have been shown to cause impaired spermatogenesis. <clears throat> Scatter radiation, so um, those who get radiation to their abdomen or pelvis can also have an effect. But luckily, testes are in an area that are a little bit more easy to shield. Um, doses around greater than about 7.5 gray have been associated with uh, decreased risk to be able to have a child. Interestingly, the Leydig cell, remember, is the cell that produces testosterone, um, are a bit more resistant to radiation, so um, you don't see testosterone deficiency. So essentially, males can have normal secondary sex sexual characteristics, but also be infertile. When looking at chemotherapy, um, I'm going to just zone in on the seminiferous tubule to discuss spermatogenesis, and I'm going to only discuss it very briefly for the sake of time. But essentially, spermatogenesis takes place in the seminiferous tubule. As you can see, this is a cross-section of the seminiferous, seminiferous tubule. And, um, the and the tubules are lined with Sertoli cells. This is where the spermatogonia, or stem cells, are located. So prior to entering puberty, these stem cells are quiescent. And then once you enter puberty, they then differentiate into spermatocytes, uh, sper spermatids, and adult sperm. Just a fun fact, I didn't know this. Sperm are the smallest cell in the human body. <laughs> Apparently males make about 3 million sperm a month, which comes up to something like 100 sperm per heartbeat. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I read it. I thought it was interesting. Um, so, so remember that cytotoxic treatment affects or targets these rapidly dividing cells. And the spermatogonium, or these stem cells, have a very high mitotic activity, so they're particularly susceptible to injury. Some males have what we call permanent azospermia, so permanent infertility, and others who are treated get transient azospermia. The mechanism of how this happens is not entirely clear, but there are a few theories that have postulated as to why or how chemotherapy um, may do this. So one, one um, idea is that in part A here, if you damage what that arrow is pointing to, the uh, spermatogonium stem cell, that will lead to permanent azospermia. There are no more stem cells to regenerate adult sperm. However, if the chemotherapy affects mainly the differentiating germ cells, this has been uh, thought to be more associated with that transient azospermia, such that there are still stem cells available to regenerate and produce sperm. 
So again, chemotherapy, um, the effects of chemotherapy are dependent on the type and the dose. So this is a chart breaking down chemotherapy based on the types. So the most gonadotoxic agents are the alkylating agents. So for example, cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide. The alkylating agents are commonly used to treat sarcomas and lymphomas. Um, and more of the low-risk uh, chemotherapies like vincristine and methotrexate um, have a much less, or are, le are associated with a less risk of uh, infertility. So going back to John, um, his chemotherapy regimen would be considered low-risk. He's not receiving any alkylating agents. However, if John, um, actually, I want to point out two other things. Here I've circled cyclophosphamide and methotrexate just to highlight that these drugs aren't specific for our cancer patients. There are many other diseases that we use these two drugs for, for example, um, nephrotic syndrome or some of the other rheumatologic diseases. This is a, uh, a table just that allows um, us to risk stratify patients. So it's a useful tool to be able to determine um, what regimens patients should go on and actually provide some um, appropriate counseling as to how their treatment is going to affect their fertility. So again, going back to John, because he's receiving non-alkylating chemotherapy, he would be considered low risk for uh, subfertility in the future. However, if he were to have testicular relapse, for example, and require testicular radiation, his risk would be, he would move up to more of a high risk category. So this is a nice algorithm um, from a paper by Anderson et al. That can you can use to approach fertility preservation options in males. So ideally, this should be done before treatment starts. And you can start by categorizing patients by whether they're pre-pubertal, pubertal, or post-pubertal. So we'll go through this algorithm together. So for pre-pubertal males, the only option is testicular tissue cryopreservation. Now, as you can see in pink, it's highlighted in pink or orange. This is an experimental technique, therapy. So it's only available um, at institutions that have IRB-approved protocols. For our pubertal and postpubertal patients, such as John, depending on their ability to produce a semen sample through masturbation, they can go directly to sperm cryopreservation. <laughs> For those who are unable to produce a, a sample through masturbation, there are other options. Um, so testis biopsy and gamete extraction. So the sperm bank collection method is through masturbation. Some centers have at-home collection kits, which is interesting. Um, the other two, the other two, oh, sorry, I should say three, um, options are a process called electroejaculation and testicular sperm extraction. So electroejaculation essentially involves um, placement of a transrectal probe while the patient is under general anesthesia, um, and the electrical stimulation is applied um, until ejaculation occurs and uh, sperm is collected. And testicular sperm extraction is performed by uh, needle biopsy. Um, when I went into pediatrics, I never thought I would say all of those words on one slide. <laughs> but it, I did. Um, <laughs> So just going back, while these algorithms look simple or look manageable, thinking about John, he's come in, he's just got a diagnosis of ALL, and in the same breath, or hopefully not in the same breath, shortly thereafter, he's told that in order for him to have, a chance, have the chance of becoming a father one day, he has to go then walk down the hall, masturbate, and provide a semen sample so, he can, so we can freeze his sperm. 
Not that easy. So some of the pros and cons I'll briefly touch on with sperm prior preservation. Um, the major pro is that there's no delay to treatment. Um, um, it's considered relatively low risk, and some studies have shown that males have reported this unimproved emotional well-being from freezing, from undergoing sperm cryopreservation during treatment. Um, and some disadvantages are access. Not all centers have sperm banking available. Cost, of course, and this concept of the, the, the sample may be considered poor quality. Kids who are sick at the time have been shown to have poor quality semen. I want to focus more on the experimental therapy, so this testicular tissue cryopreservation. Essentially, we're, essentially um, it involves taking the testicular biopsy, so a small part of the testis is removed, and the tissue is then reimplanted um, when the patient is ready to have a family. This is, provides a hopeful option for prepubertal males. Um, the major disadvantage or the concerns that are being raised is this risk of transplanting malignant cells, particularly with hematologic malignancies. Um, the, these, the leukemias can uh, see the testicular tissue. It can, you can't do it right away, so it would result in delaying treatment. It's very expensive, and we don't know the outcomes. So let's move on to girls. Remember Sarah, our 16-year-old um, with uh, pelvic ring sarcoma. So we're going to look at the effects of treatments on, on female future fertilities and uh, discuss some treatment options for our females. So again, surgery, um, removing the gonads will impair fertility. So maybe an example of this would be if a patient with rhabdomyosarcoma had to have a hysterectomy. Um, the major difference um, it, between females and males is this concept of ovarian reserve. So ovarian reserve really means it defines a woman's reproductive potential based on the number and the quality of oocytes. So females have long been thought to have a finite number of oocytes. Um, at about five months gestation, females reach their maximum number of oocytes, and it's around six to seven million. After that, there's no de novo gametogenesis. It's sort of downhill. Um, uh, so at birth, they have 1.2 million. At puberty, around 300,000. And then when women reach around 37 or 38, this decline um, accelerates until about menopause. So uh, you can imagine radiation and chemotherapy will accelerate this natural decline. So looking at the effects of radiotherapy, again, it's dependent on the site, so cranial, so radiation to the brain, abdominal or pelvic radiation, lower spine, and the uterus. Um, patients who've had uh, radiation to the uterus um, have, sh uh, there's been associated damage to the vasculature and the elasticity of the uterus, so it's impaired their function or they've been associated with having babies that are uh, premature, low birth weight, and um, many women may have uh, more miscarriages. The concept of dose is age dependent, and that's because of this concept of ovarian reserve. So. Pre-pubertal girls have a higher number of primordial follicles. Their pool is greater, so it takes a larger dose to see impairments in fertility. Post-pubertal girls, um, that pool of oocytes has naturally declining, so essentially it takes less radiotherapy to see an effect. And the anterior pituitary, um, it's estimated to be about greater than 24 gray to see um, uh, changes in the hypothalamic pituitary system. So this is a, a figure, just 
describing more of the effects of radiation toxicity um, and highlights how the sterilizing dose of radiation is age dependent. So on the x-axis is age from birth up until about menopause and the y-axis is the radiation dose in gray. The dark green is um, the age at which that dose um, renders a woman sterile. So essentially, you can see at birth, the dose is around 20 gray. For a 30-year-old female, that dose drops to 14 gray. And when you get to menopause, the dose is 2 gray or less. This can be useful in counseling patients um, about their future risks. Chemotherapy on female fertility. So it can affect females either directly through apoptosis or indirectly through um, cort causing cortical fibrosis or impairments in the vasculature of the egg. And again, we have this risk stratification tool to place patients either at high risk, medium risk, or low risk for uh, fertility, depending on the combination of therapy they received. So again, going back to Sarah, she would be put in this high-risk category based on her treatment regimen um, that she will be receiving the uh, chemotherapy with alkylating agents and this pelvic radiation. So again, we have our algorithm and schematic to approach fertility preservation options for females. So prepubertal females, again, limited options. Ovarian tissue choir preservation, which again is experimental, and that's the only option available. For postpubertal females, there are two options, oocyte cryopreservation and embryo cryopreservation. So the ovaries, the patient have to, has to undergo ovarian stimulation. And if they have a partner or donor sperm, Embryo cryopreservation is an option. I star that because you can imagine the logistics with that in the pediatric world. <laughs> so embryo, briefly, embryo and oocyte cryopreservation. So embryo cryopreservation is what adults use for IVF. So um, the, we just stimulate the ovaries to produce mature oocytes. And then the eggs have to be retrieved, usually um, through using a transvaginal ultrasound under general anesthesia. Oops, sorry. Um, if a partner and donor sperm is available, the mature eggs can be fertilized and frozen for later use. Oops, sorry. But for those patients who don't have a partner or donor sperm, oocyte cryopreservation is really just the freezing of these mature eggs. So we use embryo cryopreservation. Um, it's the most well-established procedure in adults, and it has the most, the highest success rate. But again, the disadvantage is this need for a donor or partner sperm. For oocyte cryopreservation, this is an alternative option to uh, get away from that need for donor or, or, or partner sperm. Um, again, both of these options, there's the disadvantage of it. You can't do it right away. You have to, there's a, it renders the risk of delaying chemotherapy or treatment. And then ovarian tissue cryopreservation, which is quite interesting. Um, so, this essentially involves either, so the ovarian cortex is where all of your um, immature oocytes are. So ovarian tissue cryopreservation is either laparoscopic removal of the whole ovary or sections of the ovary. The ovary is then cut up or dissected into cortical strips and frozen. Um, and this is just uh, a picture from um, Schmidt, a paper from Schmidt showing the, uh, trans the thought ovarian cortex that's being transplanted either back into the ovary or in the pictures in B, um, it's transplanted into a subperitoneal pocket that course um, in the pelvic wall. Females um, not only have shown there's been live births from this, but they also regain hormonal function. 
Again, the major advantages is that there's no delay in treatment. It's a hopeful option for our pubertal females. Um, no ovarian stimulation, so concerns regarding, surrounding estrogen exposure, and there's no partner required. Um, the disadvantages are similar to that of tissue cryopreservation with the concern for reseeding malignant cells. And it's invasive and, of course, extraordinarily expensive. Speaking of cost, as you can see, every option I presented, the disadvantage, there's been cost. So um, despite the evidence to support that fertility in cancer survivors is um, a very important issue, um, cancer survivors are not, do not fall under the same category as the um, adults who have infertility issues, so the costs are not covered. And there's a lot of programs or organizations that cover some of the costs, but thinking about storage of gametes and the medications, um, it can be quite a lot. So that um, introducing costs brings us into our next section. What are some barriers to treatment? And what are some solutions to these, to these barriers? There's been some studies that have looked at what reasons why patients do not take steps to preserve their fertility. So this paper by Ben et al. in 2015 asked that exact question. Many patients, as you can see highlighted in red, a majority of patients reported cost. It's too expensive. Males and females reported not having enough time, meaning that they didn't have time to seek out options because of their treatment. They needed to get started. There's a significant difference between females and males in this category, such that females um, felt that time was, a more, was a more of a factor than males. And then I also highlighted lack of information. So many um, participants reported not having enough information, not knowing where to go, not um, understanding their risks or their options. When looking at reasons why providers don't um, discuss fertility preservation options or refer, um, it's interesting. Many providers, and a lot of the studies have recognized that fertility preservation is a really important issue. Some have reported feeling very educated on it. Yet only 55% in this study actually referred patients to specialists. And this outlines some of their reasons um, why they did not refer. The most common reason that you read across the literature is that the patients are simply too ill to delay treatment. Very valid reason. Um, cost again comes up. Uh, providers are worried about um, the patient's insurance not covering the cost or that the patients can't afford it themselves. And um, another important issue I wanted to highlight is that time constraints. There's not, you don't have two hours to discuss the diagnosis and then go on to discuss fertility preservation. So, so very valid reasons not, um, that are preventing providers from, um, from referring patients. So the barriers identified in those two studies and elsewhere can loosely be grouped into one of three categories, communication gaps, system barriers, and ethical dilemmas. I'm going to talk about each of them, each of them and a few potential strategies to address them. So this provider, so this physician-adolescent-parent triad at baseline introduces communication challenges. So for some providers, let's face it, talking with teenagers about reproductive health or sexuality can be awkward and uncomfortable. Um, so talking about reproductive health and cancer or a new cancer diagnosis can be even more challenging. How do you communicate to a 12-year-old about oocytes and embryos? Um, I don't know about you, but either it was really bad at biology or 
late bloomer. I did not know what an oocyte was when I was 12. Probably didn't know until I was like 16, 17, at least. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult situation. At the time of a diagnosis, clearly it's a highly emotionally charged time. Parents are in a state of shock. So, be able, so in order to make informed decisions about their child's future fertility, um, it may not, first of all, be prioritized, and it may be very difficult. So how do providers speak to parents and speak to patients about this? Lastly, providers may um, feel that they're just not adequately trained when it comes to adolescent sexual health. Uh, an interesting study was done looking at what parents thought their children or their teenage girls' reproductive concerns were. So there was a questionnaire. They looked. They took a parent and a teenage girl and gave a questionnaire to each of them, and then asked parents also to predict what they think their daughter's reproductive concerns were. And the results were pretty staggering. It essentially showed that overall teens had more concerns about, these are teens with um, adolescent oncology patients, had more concerns about their reproductive health than their parents. And that 64% of the parents um, provided incorrect predi predictions of what their, they thought their daughter would want. So definitely some communication breakdown. This is a tool, um, it's adolescent-friendly values clarification tool, and it was uh, essentially a 10-item questionnaire that I discussed, and it, it's for patients to fill out, and what's awesome about it is it's really simple, it's straightforward, it doesn't require a scoring system, and it comes with this provider's manual that any provider can um, use to assess what their patient's goals are regarding fertility, help them make decisions, and provide really useful phrases and questions in order to communicate with patients and their parents regarding this difficult issue. Another interesting program to um, identify some of these communication gaps that's been developed is something called Educating Nurses About Reproductive Issues in Cancer Healthcare in Rich. So this is an eight-week online e-learning program offered to oncology nurses aimed at improving their knowledge surrounding fertility preservation and ways to communicate with parents and patients. So system barriers, access, lack of guidelines, referral pathways, and again, cost. I put this picture of a gondola here um, because, uh, well, this is a gondola at OHSU. It connects the children's hospital um, and then the fertility, to the fertility center, reproductive center at the bottom. So thinking about access, patients have to, they see their oncologist at the children's hospital. They have to provide a sperm sample, and then they have to hop on the gondola, carrying their sperm sample, probably with their mom or dad, and go down to the fertility clinic. Not easy, I'm sure. Um, so guidelines. Um, so the American Society of Clinical Oncology has actually developed guidelines to help providers and provide recommendations surrounding the issues of fertility. Um, Three key points, this is the second iteration of the guideline, and um, three key points I want to make, or that they recommend, is that all providers should be discussing fertility preservation in patients, not just the oncologist. This should be done early on, before treatment ideally, and if any patient expressed an interest in fertility or ambivalence, they should be referred to a specialist. 
Another strategy that I wanted to highlight or possible solution to some of these system barriers surrounding accessing referral pathways is um, this concept of a patient navigator. Uh, Northwestern University and Cincinnati Children's Fertility Preservation Program have identified this role of patient navigator. Um, essentially, they when a patient has a, is identified as having a risk of infertility, the patient navigator meets with the patient to assess them, counsel them, and educate them on fertility preservation options. They also link them to reproductive health or reproductive endocrinologists and neurologists to expedite the referral process in a timely manner. And lastly, ethical dilemmas. So this could be an hour talk. Um, ethical dilemmas in fertility in children is, is a huge talk. But I just wanted to identify um, some five key principles, and hopefully, or perhaps at the end of my, of my talk, we can discuss these in further detail. So autonomy, autonomous decision-making. Whose autonomy do we prioritize, the parent or the patient? Does an adolescent have the maturity to make a decision about their uh, future fertility? Teenagers are given the uh, option to make decisions about sexual uh, reproductive health at the age of 14, consent to contraception. Should this apply to uh, fertility preservation options? Do no harm. So one question that is raised is, are we causing more harm by offering fertility options in the sense that are we offering this false sense of hope, this false sense of hope for survival, this false sense of hope that these children may be able to conceive when for some of the options we don't know the outcomes, or we don't know, or they may not be that high. Do no harm also applies to, is it morally acceptable to put you know, adolescent patients through some of these procedures, ovarian stimulation, um, transvaginal vaginal ultrasounds? And again, is it ethically okay to have pornography in a hospital to um, help children or help boys masturbate to provide semen samples? So lots of questions there. Cost, again, um, the issue is, is it okay to offer these options to our patients um, when they may not be able to afford the storage? Or for patients who have um, poor a poor prognosis, should we utilize resources when they may be best used elsewhere? Religion, or religion and cultural barriers is another big one. And again, uh, posthumous reproduction. Um, what happens with the embryo or gametes should a patient pass away? And is an adolescent competent to make a decision about the future disposition of her gametes? So if our patient Sarah says that she wants to use her boyfriend's sperm to undergo embryo cryopreservation, can she should she do this, and can she um, make that decision about what happens if, um, sh if she passes away? So as you can see, lots of issues. Now, I want to um, play this in my talk, because I know I'm running short here, with a video which is a collection of various patient interviews from the Fertility Preservation Program at CHOP that I think really encompasses some of the themes and ideas I've spoken about today. There's a 50% chance this will work. <laughs>
not ask questions that you're not sure you want to talk about, but you should. You should do it because you never know if you want to have kids or not. You're young, so you never really decide to get older. It didn't occur to me that one of the possibilities would be infertility. She was really cool about it. Like, just the first thought of it is like, okay, you want me to do what exactly? <laughs> it took me by surprise, but like, in the long run, I'm really, really happy I did it now. Um, one thing that helped me out a lot, now I think about it, because in, in my eyes, I was like, it was the end, but on the other hand, there's someone, there's someone thinking that I, that I can survive. So if someone thinks I can survive, I should be thinking that, yeah, I can survive. And so, like, them coming to me and asking me about the sperm bank, I think that really helped because it um, gave a positive thought in my mind, a positive idea. I think that the conversation about whether or not you want to preserve your fertility is very necessary. I would say that there, you always need to look forward to something in the future when you have cancer. Fertility treatment uh, is definitely important for cancer patients. I mean, like, especially for pediatric patients, too, because like they have a whole life ahead of them, and you need that choice, too. I think everyone should have like a choice of being a mom. I think that's very important to give that choice, because everyone else has a choice, and we shouldn't be left without it. So I am really happy that I did it, because now I don't have to worry about, well, you know, I'm like 20, and like maybe I won't be able to have kids. Now I can push it out of my way and think about things like finishing college and dating and just things that normal 20-year-olds have to think about and not something out of the ordinary. What are your hopes for the future? So, in summary, let's put the lights back on. In summary, what I hope or want you to walk away with is three main takeaways today. This is an evolving field in pediatrics, expanding well beyond oncology. There are many promising therapies now and on their horizon, and it's something we should be aware of and utilize whenever possible. Two is communication. It's the responsibility of all providers to have timely conversations with their patients about fertility preservation options. And lastly, the power of hope. Discussing for fertility preservation with patients facing cancer or, any, or other diseases is a way to preserve hope that is so important in their lives. So thank you very much for listening. I want to say... I really want to say a special thanks to Dr. Shubkin and her patients in teaching me. Um, Dr. Kim, Dr. Ames, Dr. Van Hoff, Sam House, um, our amazing Chief Bridget, and uh, the residents for all your support. Sorry for running a bit late. Um, I have a few questions. One, are we one of the experimental sites, so can we offer um, 
cystic lip tissue and ovarian tissue preservation? Don't believe so, no. And um, the other question is, a lot in the video, especially the kids are like, oh, now I don't have to worry. But it seems like, I'm not sure what the rates of success are, even the thing that we have the most experience with. So, yeah. you know, oocyte preservation, like what is the success rate and what is their risk of not being able to have children in spite of having done this? Yeah, so I think that's one of the the, the concerns is that it's is, are we providing this like false hope because we don't know a lot of the time. There's not enough data. There's um, we have data from what the live births are, um, but we don't know. A lot of the concerns actually that get raised is um, what are what are the risks to the offspring, um, and that's been actually there's been two papers in pediatrics in March looking at the effects of assisted reproductive technology on offspring and outcome, but um, I don't actually know the. Uh, success rate for oocyte car preservation off the top of my head. I think one thing is that we don't actually have a lot of data yet. But it, it does, it raises like, that's obviously a very biased video. Um, but uh, it does raise a lot of questions like that because it's the, the concern that we don't want to give these kids false hope. There's an open protocol at Brown and the, for O preservation, they're finding about a 12% success rate over the last two years. So. Not. Mm -hmm. It's like 12 per egg, so if we say 10, I have 100%. On that same, uh, first of all, thank you for a great talk. That was wonderful. But in that same area, is there, I don't know enough about pediatric cancer, but with, also with some of these other diseases you mentioned, is there ever any discussion about inherited diseases? And so you're preserving all this option for children who might have the exact same disease that the patient's going through. Is that ever discussed? Yeah, that is discussed. In the, um, for the oncology patients, there has been no, what I've read, um, risk of inherited diseases aside from the inherited cancers. Um, but uh, is that your question in terms of whether people discuss it or? Well, it's it, been researched it's and asked, like, yeah. Like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's more obvious. Mm -hmm. than that. And cancer, from what, um, I mean, what I know or what I've read is that it's certainly an issue that's been talked about, but there's no, the research hasn't shown any risk of inheriting uh, cancer unless it's one of the heritable cancer, cancers like the leaf or money or, or something like that. I don't know, Beth, do you have any? So oftentimes, if there's a question after taking a thorough family history by the fertility specialist, they make the patient and, and his or her partner see a, a, um, a genetic counselor first. Yeah. Just so everybody's sort of having open discussion about possibilities. It's part of the protocol at Dana-Farber. You, you see the, the genetic counselor as part of the fertility specialty visit. Sam, you mentioned the, the theoretical risk of during reimplantation of reimplanting uh, some stray cancer cells. Has that been formally reported as a, a it's just a theoretical. They were, they were, well, no, they've been looking at it um, not in, even in humans. They've been doing adult or animal studies and seeing that the, some of the uh, hematologic malignancies, so the, the leukemic risks, can seed into the testicular tissue. It's more theoretical. I didn't see any kind of. Is there any uh, work that you're aware of uh, trying to do the, all of this ex vivo and not have to reimplant the tissue? Um, so some. Researchers are looking at the rather to to mean to mitigate this risk of yeah. So some research is looking at the um, in vitro maturation 
of eggs and tissues, so rather than so maturing the eggs in vitro and then reimplanting them to avoid reimplanting the actual tissue. Yes. I was just going to say yes that that they are working on you know the other site that they often will uh, reimplant the cryopreserved um, ovarian cortices strips is in the forearm, so that's very accessible uh, for these patients then to go back and not have to have a, a pelvic procedure. Um, there's there's a lot of work done on you know oocyte cryopreservation. It's in the last year tremendous uh, gains as far as the. Um, Success, the flash freezing of it, the very quick freezing and thawing of it has been a big part of that. And I wouldn't be surprised that if that 12% number goes up quite a bit in the near future just with all the technology. And I have this discussion, I was going to say, a couple of times a week with my transgender patients, both the adolescents and actually the adult patients. I'm seeing patients now who transition maybe, you know, in their uh, late teens, uh, 18, 19, 20, are now coming back with life partners. 10, 15, 20 years later, um, it's a very, it's a fascinating, we're, we're learning a lot, but we have a, it's a steep curve ahead to sort of figure out what the effects long term of the hormones are on, on gametes. So. so for those who don't know, Dr. Benbo is, uh, as you mentioned, leads our transgender uh, program in endocrinology, and Bethany, we all know, Dr. Ames is the leader of our late effects cancer survivors program, so both even though Sam will be north of the border, we have local resources for those who encounter these uh, clinical situations. Dr. Kim. Uh, great talk, first of all. Um, I, I wanted to just highlight one of the top, the papers that you briefly mentioned, the one with the, um, the congruence discussion tool. Oh, yeah. Actually, they come up with the questions. One of the things that I found fascinating with that paper was the discussion that um, some of the highest success rates of getting information was not from the actual medical provider, but from the ancillary staff. So social work was in crucial, actually, in figuring out and helping out the parents figure out how to talk to the kids and also to get the uh, correct information from the kids. So I think it's one of those reminders that it's not just the medical, the MD or DO provider that should have that talk with the families and the patient. I saw hands, but I think that's an appropriate uh, capstone comment. It's a multidisciplinary team in the room. Um, this is a team effort. And thank you, Sam. Once again. Thank you.